morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We're going to be covering verses 13 to 52 this morning. Last week, we talked about how Paul and Barnabas had been sent out on their first missions trip by the leaders of the church in Antioch. They traveled throughout the island of Cyprus until they got to Paphos on the far western side. There, they encountered opposition from a sorcerer nicknamed Elymas. Paul confronted him, calling him a son of the devil, and Elymas became blind. The proconsul who ruled the island, however, became saved. One of the main points of the passage was how the gospel continued to go forth in spite of opposition. This week, Paul and Barnabas continued their first mission trip by leaving the island of Cyprus and sailing north to the mainland of what today is called Turkey. Let's start by reading verses 13 to 15. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would remove distractions from our minds this morning and help us focus on your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and draw us closer to you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there were no ferry boats or passenger ships in those days. So Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark would have made arrangements with a commercial ship to ride along for the roughly 200-mile sea voyage from Paphos to one of the seaports of Perga, which was about seven miles inland. It was at this point that John Mark, probably the author of the Gospel of Mark, left them and went home to Jerusalem. We will find out later in Acts that Mark didn't just leave them, he apparently deserted them, and that this will become a significant controversy between Paul and Barnabas later. From Perga, Paul and Barnabas traveled about 120 miles north to Antioch in the province of Pisidia. Now, this is not the same Antioch they came from. The Antioch they came from was one of the biggest cities in the empire. The Antioch in Pisidia was just a small town. The trip would have been difficult, traveling from sea level to an elevation of about 3,500 feet through rugged terrain that was ideal for robbers. According to Paul's personal testimony, as if that wasn't enough, it was apparently somewhere on this trip that he was struck with some kind of debilitating disease. Galatians 4, Paul tells the new believers in this region, as you know, it was because of an illness that I preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. But Paul then goes on to say that if they could have done so, they would have torn out their eyes to give to him. So apparently this illness had to do something with his eyes, and it seems to have been disfiguring in some way. Whatever this illness was, Paul did not let it stop him. He continued preaching the gospel anyway. 
Now, two weeks ago, we talked about how the gospel went forth in spite of government opposition. Last week, we talked about how the gospel went forth in spite of spiritual opposition from a sorcerer. This week, not even some physical condition will keep Paul from spreading the gospel. This past week, Sheila and I watched a TV special on Alex Trebek, who just died from cancer. Someone talked about Trebek's struggle with cancer and how he would sometimes be in excruciating pain just before a show. But when it was time to go on, he would somehow ignore the pain, put on a smile, and go on as if nothing was wrong. I picture Paul something like that. He wasn't about to let some physical condition stop him. Of course, there are limits. Some Sometimes physical conditions make it impossible to continue. But in this case, Paul pressed on. When they arrived at Antioch in Pisidia, Paul and Barnabas went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, Paul was a rabbi and Barnabas was a Levite. So when they attended the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, they were asked if they wanted to speak. So Paul preached the sermon that Luke has summarized for us in verses 16 to 47. I'm afraid even Luke's summary is too long to read this morning. So I'm going to read my summary of Luke's summary. You'll have to read verses 16 to 47 later for yourself to see if I've summarized accurately. What Paul basically said in this sermon was this. Fellow Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, God chose our Jewish ancestors and made them prosper during their captivity in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of Egypt. And for about 40 years, he endured their rebellious conduct in the wilderness. Then through Joshua, God overthrew the nations in Cana, giving the land to our ancestors. After this, God gave our ancestors the judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king. So he gave them King Saul, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king, a man after God's own heart. From David's descendants, God has brought to Israel Jesus, the Savior he had promised. In fact, when John the Baptist was preaching repentance and baptism to the people of Israel, he told them, I'm not the one you're looking for. There's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, and yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets. Though they found no grounds for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about Jesus in the scriptures, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. For many days he was seen by his followers who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us by raising up Jesus, just as it is written in the scriptures. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is available to you. Through Jesus, everyone who believes in him is set free from every sin. 
But beware of the prophet's warning of judgment that does not happen to you. Now, the initial response to Paul's message was positive. Verses 48 and 49 tell us that when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad that many believed. The word of God spread through the whole region. Verses 50 and 51, however, the Jewish leaders stirred up some of the women of high social standing and the leading men of the city to expel Paul and Barnabas from their region. Now, I may have been discouraged and said, oh, well, what's the use? Let's go home. But instead, verses 51 and 52 say that Paul and Barnabas were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The text says they shook off the dust from their feet, which was a symbol of judgment. They went on to Iconium, about 95 miles to the east. Now, before we go on, I want you to notice that the first place Paul went in Pisidian Antioch was a synagogue. Last week, I reminded you that in the book of Romans, Paul said that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greeks or Gentiles. I said Paul's priority of the Jew first was not because he was racist or hated Gentiles, but because God's mission in the Old Testament were for Jews to be a light to the Gentiles. I think Paul was wanting to convert his fellow Jews so they could fulfill their God-given responsibility to be a light to the Gentiles. In fact, in verse 47, Paul says as much. He quotes from Isaiah 49, 6, which says, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That was God's purpose for the Jews. But since the Jewish leaders rejected the gospel and expelled them from the region, Paul says he will go to the Gentiles. Now, let me leave you with just three additional lessons or observations this morning. First, before we get into more practical issues, <clears throat> let me focus for a minute on a theological debate that's been going on literally since the time of Jesus in disputes between Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, there are theologians called Calvinists who will say, See, this verse shows that God appoints only some people to eternal life, and they are the only ones who will believe. God only chooses some people to be saved, and he gives them the faith to be saved. Another group of theologians called Arminians point out that 1 Peter 3.9 says, God does not want anyone to perish. And in 1 Timothy 2.4, Paul says, God wants all people to be saved. So Arminians will ask, how is it possible that God would like everyone to be saved if he only chooses some people to be saved? The issue is, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God with human free will? Calvinists emphasize God's sovereignty. Armenians emphasize, emphasize people's free will. There's a third group of theologians, however, called compatibilists, who say that both sides are true even if we can't understand it. So, for example, and, and some of you with a science background will understand this better than I do, but my understanding is that in quantum physics, light is both a particle and a wave. Not a wave of particles. They are two separate and entirely different things. Now, logic would say that light is either a particle or a wave, but it can't be both. 
And yet quantum physicists say that life, it, light is in fact both particle and wave at the same time, even if we can't understand it. There are numerous things in quantum phys physics that physicists believe are true, even though physicists don't understand how. This is kind of how I view the argument about God's sovereignty and people's free will. The Bible teaches both, and I believe both are true. I personally tend to be a little bit more on the Arminian side of this issue, and I think it's a fun issue to think about and discuss. But I'm pretty sure that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ someday, not one single question will be about whether we were Arminian or Calvinist. I've told this story before, but it fits well here too. In early American history, two of our greatest evangelists were John Wesley and George Whitfield. They did very successful evangelistic campaigns together. But Wesley was an Arminian and Whitfield was a Calvinist. Eventually their differences caused them to split up and go their separate ways, doing separate evangelistic campaigns. One day someone asked George Whitfield, Mr. Whitfield, do you think you'll ever see John Wesley in heaven? Whitfield thought for a minute and said, no, I don't think I will. Because when I get to heaven, John Wesley will be so close to the glory of the Lord, I won't even be able to see him up there. I love this story because it shows that there are godly people on both sides of this issue and that we should be able to disagree on predestination and free will and still respect Christians who disagree with us. My second observation is that when Paul reviewed a brief history of Israel in his sermon, I think his point was that Jesus stands squarely in the line of Old Testament Jewish history. Jesus was foretold by the law and the prophets. He is the Messiah and Savior they've been waiting for. A few years ago, there were a bunch of scholars making a name for themselves with books and speaking engagements who tried to downplay the Jewishness of Jesus, argue that Jesus was more like a cynic or Greek cynic philosopher than a Jewish prophet or Messiah. You don't hear much about them today because their nonsense was thoroughly refuted. Paul himself would have called it nonsense. When Paul preached about Jesus in his sermon, he was in no way distancing Jesus or himself from their Jewish heritage. On the contrary, he places Jesus precisely as the fulfillment of all that Jewish history the law and the prophets had foretold, looked forward to. One practical implication of this today has to do with anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism seems to be growing in America, especially on our college campuses. We now even have members of Congress who are openly anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish. Unfortunately, anti-Semitism has raised its ugly head even in some liberal church groups. There is no place for anti-Semitism in the body of Christ. Jesus was Jewish. Paul was Jewish. And all the earliest Christians were Jewish. Paul never distances himself from that heritage. In fact, in verse 16, Paul calls his Jewish synagogue audience fellow Israelites. And in verse 26, Paul calls his audience fellow children of Abraham. Verses 17 and 32, Paul talks about our ancestors. And in verse 31, Paul talks about our people. In Romans 11, Paul will talk about how us believing Gentiles are grafted into that Jewish heritage. We Gentiles, Gentile Christians, are spiritual Jews, adopted, so to speak, into Jesus' Jewish family. There is no place for anti-Semitism in the body of Christ. 
Third, in verse 39, Paul says that through him, that is through Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Now, we've talked about this many times before, but it is impossible to talk about it too much. Believing is not just believing that Jesus existed or even that he died and rose again. The book of James says that even the demons believe and tremble. They tremble at the thought of their fate. As John Calvin once wrote, believing in Jesus has more to do with one's heart than one's head. In the military, you sometimes have leaders who are really just not all that bright or whose primary concern is to look out for themselves. But Captain Williams was different. He was an extraordinary leader, brave, highly trained, skillful, and intelligent, and he deeply cared for the soldiers under his command. Quite frankly, his men loved and trusted him. They would follow him anywhere, into any battle, and through any hardship. That's because those soldiers believed in their captain. Jesus or John or Paul talk about faith or trust or believing in Jesus. That's the kind of believing they're talking about. Now, there's both a negative and a positive side to Paul's message. On the negative side, Paul warns of judgment for those who reject this message. Verses 40 to 42 say, Take care that what the prophet have said does not happen to you. Paul then quotes from the book of Habakkuk, which we discussed briefly last week. Habakkuk was asking God why God was ignoring all the strife and conflict and injustice and violence going on in Judah. God says, look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. That thing they would never believe is judgment. Judgment by the Babylonians who would brutally destroy their nation and deport many of the inhabitants. Now, Paul was a rabbi. He knows that this is talking about judgment by the Babylonians and that this had already happened 600 years before his time. So Paul is not predicting judgment by Babylonians. But he is saying that when people ignore God, in this case, Paul's message about believing in Jesus, judgment will follow. Paul says, don't be like those who rejected God and face the wrath of God's judgment. On the positive side, Paul promises in verse 39 that those who believe in Jesus are justified and set free or acquitted from every sin. Paul means that we are free from the penalty of that sin. Paul means that we have been set free from the wrath of God that comes on those who reject God. Romans 1, Paul wrote that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their right, their wickedness. John said the same thing in the Gospel of John. In John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. The positive side is that for those who believe in Jesus, their sin is forgiven. God's wrath is removed, and they have peace with God. This, however, does not save us from the problems or sufferings of life, but it does give us forgiveness of sins, peace with God, a purpose for living, and a bright hope for life after death. As I emphasize in every funeral I preach, death is not the end.
there's anyone here this morning who's never repented of their sin, committed themselves to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and King. Now is the time. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. If you have any questions, please see me after church or email me if you'd like. I'll even buy you lunch or supper just to talk to you about this with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for friends, family members, co-workers, neighbors, acquaintances, and anyone here this morning who may not know you as their master and king, that they may be convicted of their sins, repent and turn their life over to Jesus. We ask that in our Savior's name. Amen.